Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malaman. I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Bluth. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. When we talk loosely about countries, we often interchange the words we use nation, state, country, and so on. But these attempts to define a political collective have many variations. Do you have to live in the country of which you're a citizen to be considered part of that nation? Are nations collections of people with similar beliefs and backgrounds? Or can you have multinational states where no single ethnic group dominates? What's the difference between loving one's country and being a nationalist? And does nationalism subtly or explicitly entail a kind of prejudice, a favoring of one's own, as opposed to other human beings? Is there a moral justification for nationalism? And ultimately, does the drawing of national boundaries create an automatic ethical problem, which at times can lead to xenophobia and even violence against neighboring states? I'm Elia Malamut, and this is What Would You Do?, a monthly podcast about ethics in the modern world. In this episode, I discuss issues of nationalism with my son, Akiva Malamut, who is a graduate student in philosophy at Queen's University in Ontario. His research deals with matters of immigration policy, and he has published online on the ethics of nationalism. Akiva, you've written that nationalism is making a comeback. Buoyed by the rise of right-wing and authoritarian parties and movements across the globe, our political moment is full of appeals to this revived and increasingly popular creed. Could you explain why you think nationalism has risen up so forcefully in recent years? What do you think its popularity tells us about what certain people in the populace want or yearn for? So it's sometimes difficult to trace the relationship between some kind of event or movement or phenomenon in society and its cause. Things sometimes just kind of emerge as an organic cultural phenomenon and they can be, can be, can become kind of hard to trace. But I think as the modern, but in, in broad terms, I think as the modern world has increased in its penetration into different parts of our lives, that general phenomenon, whether te- it's technological or cultural or political or moral, has created a lot of disruption, a lot of upheaval for people in different parts of their lives. And I think the search for nationalism trades on a way of resolving instability that people experience because of the dynamic and unpredictable and sometimes quite confusing and scary changes that modern life comes with, whether we're talking about people losing their jobs because of economic churn, or we're talking about cultural changes, about which set of norms we have about, let's say, gender and sexuality, or who the main cultural group might be in a society, whether it's Traditionally, it would be white people and Christians, and now with ways of immigration and the emergence of multiculturalism, it's a more diverse society. So all of those changes can be quite difficult and disruptive. 
And in general, modern liberal societies trade on the idea that there is no one way to be a person. There is no one way to live your life and to be good. But it's very difficult to live your life without without some kind of central direction. It can become quite challenging to orient yourself in a world where there's no preset categories for the way you should behave and the way you should be. And I think all of that is quite scary to people and quite difficult. And so nationalism, like religious fundamentalism, basically trades on a myth about some kind of primeval past where there was a one pure, uncorrupted social body that we were all part of, and that social body has been somehow tainted by social change. And by returning to some, by trying to reestablish that social body by creating a nation of, let's say, America for Americans, or making America great again, phrases like this try to express some kind of desire that somehow there was a time when society was not so confusing and difficult and disruptive, and we can bring that back if only we enact certain policy changes, if only we try and stop the tide of immigration, or we exclude transgender people from certain social spaces, or whatever the political cause is, that that will restore society to a more comfortable place. So it's interesting you, you talk about this, because I guess we should really get to kind of definitions in a sense, like what exactly is a nation? Right. The Israeli political theorist Yoram Khazoni has argued that a nation is kind of an extension of a tribe, which would mean that it's a kind of ethnically homogeneous group which shares the same language, same culture, religion, originates from the same area, and contrasts nations with what he calls empires. And empires he defines as being composed of many different tribes joined together through conquest by the dominant tribe. You know, from this description, Akiva, it almost sounds like that a nation's like a huge overgrown family. Do you see these as viable definitions or do you think that he has it wrong? And if so, why? So I think it's important to know that note that Chazoni's definition is put in service of a very particular kind of political theory in which he wants to restore the moral status of, na- of, the, of nationalism and is critical of the moves against nationalism by liberalism. And I don't mean liberalism in the sense of the American Democratic Party, but liberalism in a larger philosophical sense, the philosophy of John Locke, John Stuart Mill, a philosophy that emphasizes the individual human rights of people rather than the moral role of collectives and nations. Now, Chazoni wants to say that there is some kind of special moral status and priority that should be given to groups, to nations. And his argument is that Such groups are not interested in the negative things that critics of nationalism often charge nations with, which is war, violence, imperialism, subjugation of another group to the, to the will of another, to will of your own, and so on. And he argues that all nations are, are people with the same culture, the same language, who want to live in the land that they come from. And it's about keeping to yourself and doing your own thing. And he contrasts this with what he calls imperialism, which is about groups subjugating one to another. The problem is that this demarcation is completely ahistorical. So there have been lots of reviews of Chazoni pointing this out, that he doesn't really take take good notice of the academic literature on nationalism from people like Benedict Anderson, Eric Hobsbawm, Ernest Gellner, and so on, who have demonstrated that nationalism is, in many cases, a modern phenomenon and not an ancient one, and that the concept of a nation is a fairly recent idea that it emerges from Europe in the 19th century, 
and preceding it, generally the modern era overall, and is a construct created by groups, kingdoms, and then later states and what they call nation states, these political entities, in order to solidify their rule. And so bef- they, there didn't, there wasn't always lands called England and France. There were various medieval kingdoms that then later became politically consolidated that had multiple different groups under them speaking different languages. And in order to col- pull these groups together, the French state invented this concept of being French, where everyone speaks French. In order to interact with the government, you have to use French. You have to go to French schools where you learn about French language and so on. And so in many ways, the nations are not historical things from time immemorial, but are social constructs of a very contemporary origin. I just want to clarify something here for myself. I'll use a very simple kind of example. So when I read the Bible, I see all sorts of countries, right? I see Babylonia and I see Assyria and I see the Philistines and so on. Hugh argued here that what we call nationalism is is a modern product, a modern invention. I, I want you to tell me what makes it modern and how are you distinguishing this from all of the, at least the place names, the country names that we see in antiquity? So it's important to note a few things and, and, and an important caveat. I do not claim that every nation on earth is a modern social construct, simply that most of them are. There are nations which date back a very long time and ethnic groups that take about a very long time. So, you know, people that we would consider ethnically French, maybe that whose blood runs back to like the, the, the Gauls and the Vandals and the Visigoths, right? There is some sort of relationship between the ancient tribes of Gaul and modern France, but it's a very kind of indirect and distant one. And so, you know, there is work in nationalism, it was prominently the work of Anthony Smith, who argues that some nations are what he calls primordial. They come from the, an original ethnic group. But a lot of, but I think a general consensus in scholarship is that pure, pure ethnic nations that derive from some ancient tribe and that that then established a modern state are few and far between. Although you can say that perhaps groups, as Chazoni does, like the Jews, might represent this kind of thing. Although I think the complexity of of Jewish identity across East and West makes that more complicated. So. The the point here in general is to say that the nation is not a huge overgrown family most of the time, but involves one tribe conquering other tribes. And then from this, the dominant tribe establishes a mythology, what Benedict Anderson calls an imagined community that all of these tribes can buy into and is not this pure relationship as Chazoni suggests. And I mean, ultimately, as I said, I think Chazoni is doing this in order to 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 retrofit his moral convictions into a historical theory. So he wants to say that nations are about keeping to yourself and just taking care of your own own things. And in many ways, this it's a kind of, and, and just claiming what is yours. And I think this is to some extent a way of for him to justify this project of Zionism in many ways, as well as the project of many Western nations and their own assertions of nationalism, which is why he's been supportive. Uh, for example, Viktor Orban in Hungary and and such similar kinds of of movements. And so the problem, as I said, is that this is ahistorical, and it's also in terms of the composition of nations, and it's also not true that nations refrain from conquest and empires don't. This is a kind of uh, no true Scotsman form of arguing in which every proffered example is actually not in the category talking about Sofchazoni, 
argues that Nazism was not nationalism. It was imperialism because the Nazis wanted to conquer the world, even though Nazism is based on the idea that there is a pure German people with a German language and a German culture that, you know, it has existed back, that, that is simply a projection of ancient ties. And so what Chazoni wants is trying to do is simply say that every counterexample of violent nationalism isn't nationalism. And then he further wants to say that the real imperialists, the real imposers of, of will in the world are people who belong to the liberal philosophical tradition because liberals in general are internationalists and cosmopolitans and don't believe that our relationships and moral duties are limited to a nation state and are critical of nation states for being tribal and sectarian. So I just want to change tax for a minute and play devil's advocate in a way and talk about the relationship between feeling like you're part, you have a background from a nation and the sort of positive way that can nurture people. So I guess I would ask you, can't nations be a valuable thing in terms of fomenting culture, art, and a very thick sense of identity? After all, people have to come from somewhere. Or do you see what I'm describing as different than what's called nationalism? So I think that question somewhat collapses the concept of nation with the concept of identity. People can have a multitude of different identities, different social groups that they belong to. You know, you can be a member of your chess club and you can be a member of, you know, you can be very involved in your local art scene and you can belong to a particular religion. You can belong to all kinds of things. And all of these collective affiliations are forms of identity. The nation is one form of collective identity that is, as I said, largely based on a myth of common belonging. Although not always, as I said, there are ancient peoples such as the Jews. Now, wanting to belong to something is not in and of itself a bad thing. We need, first of all, humans are culturally and socially situated. We come from a particular social setting. And a lot of the meaning in our lives is created by belonging to some kind of group and getting enjoyment and fulfillment out of that. The problem comes when that when that affiliation turns into a kind of moral prioritization or exclusivity where the people in my group matter more than the people in yours or have to be given some kind of special treatment because they are the members of my group and my group in comparison with others. And in particular, because nationalism as I've mentioned, is often based on creating a myth of a single people out of a heterogeneous composite of peoples, it invites xenophobia and exclusion because it becomes this game of deciding who really meets the criteria for and represents this concept of France or this concept of BR of England or this way of being American that the imagined community projects. So... Nationalism in general, as I see as being quite a negative and dangerous phenomenon in most cases because of that. So would you say that you think nationalism sort of compromises a moral commitment to all human beings, no matter where they are? Yeah. So that would, from an, as an ethical proposition, that is my main problem with nationalism is that it is a particularist partisan ideology that argues that we should morally prioritize people that happen to either be from the same group as us, if it's actually an ethnic relationship, or simply people who happen to live in the same geographical area of us, who happen to occupy the same piece of the planet that 
a government was created to order that, you know, that we call America or Canada or England or France or whoever. But ultimately, in many ways, these people are not my family. There's people who happen to live in the same area as me, many of whom I do not know, who are complete strangers to me, and who I have no closer relationship with than I do the people who are in the country next door. So do you think there's any moral basis then in which nations should command their citizens' loyalty? Or is it just mythical to think of a nation as a unified collective when, as you're sort of alluding to, in fact, virtually everyone in your country is going to remain a stranger to you forever. I'm asking you if there's a moral basis in which nations should command their citizens' loyalty. Is there, is there anything in that? So I think you have to separate this into two different questions. One is, should are there duties to a particular collective? And the other is, does the state, does a state which claims to represent those people have a right to rule? And those are different philosophical questions. And my answer to both of those in principled terms I had, I should emphasize and not necessarily practical terms is no. I do not think that there is some kind of special moral obligation that you have to people, even people who are fellow members of your ethnic group, because to me, it represents ultimately is not different than racism. It is simply a prioritization of people you happen to be related to or share a physical space with over the interests of people who happen to not be related to you and share and not share a space with. I do think there is room for prioritization when the people that you are involved with, you have commonly consented to engage in a joint project and you've, you've done things which establish your obligation to them. So for example, I do think it's reasonable to prioritize your spouse or your children over other people, but I do not think that nations are the same thing as having a spouse or a child. I think they are people, they are simply groups that happen to have some kind of relationship, as I said, either by ethnicity or religion or historical happenstance. On to the state question, as I said, I don't think the nations have a right to rule. And I, in philosophical terms, I'm what is called a philosophical anarchist. And this is distinguished. There's a distinction that philosophers make between philosophical anarchism, that is, in principle, no government has moral authority because it has never obtained the consent of the governed, and practical anarchism, which entails actually getting rid of the state. So you might believe that the state doesn't have moral authority, but still think from a practical point of view that there is no good alternative to having a centralized state. One of the things that, in the way, troubles me about what you're saying and also makes me think about it is that I wonder how much do you think individuals in the modern world can just be seen as like separate human beings, not reducible or cultural and national context, because it would seem to me that we're not just atomized beings sharing the same space. It's true that, yes, I would probably not know 99.9% of all the people who call themselves, you know, Canadian or Israeli or American or English or what have you. But on the other hand, there does seem to be, if not a shared destiny, maybe that's a strong phrase, something that's uniting people together a little bit more than just, you know, we share the same geography. I'm kind of wondering why people get upset when there's something that happens to their country, as opposed to something far, far away. Is that just a kind of ingrained prejudice, or is there something that they're responding to that's real in terms of the connections they feel as part of a country? So, to some extent, I think we are always affected by things that are closer to us. Closer than it is to us, the more real it feels. So the philosopher and economist Adam Smith famously said that 
I will feel more deeply the pain if my, I prick my finger than if I hear that a earthquake killed a thousand people in China, because the pricking of the finger is simply more immediate and real to me. So on some level, I think this is simply a kind of psychological thing. I do think that people see their lives as bound up with those of other people who are in their country in the sense that they share a government. And so in some, so in some sense, there is a sharing of a common project. But I see that relationship as a very kind of instrumental one. That is, we live in a certain place and we're trying to construct a common society so that we can get things done. And so I see that pro, that kind of relationship as what John Rawls calls a cooperative venture for mutual advantage. It's simply a kind of agreement so that we can get things done, but it's not that different than an agreement that you might make with someone from another country. It just happens to be, it, it's not different in, in kind than other kinds of agreements you might make that are also significant, such as a romantic relationship or a release or a commercial relationship to someone who's outside of that country. It's simply a limited decision to associate for the sake of mutual benefit. And there's a lot of mythology and romanticism that is thrown around that relationship. And in the end, governments are simply service providers. They are not mythic representatives of people. They are not some kind of thing that is that exists above and beyond the people that make it up and that support it. So the, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre has a quote where he says the that being asked to die for the government is like being asked to die for the telephone companies. Or to die for the nation is like being asked to die for the telephone company. Because in the end, what these are are service agencies. And the relationships that we have in countries are relationships based on some kind of decision for mutual advantage. In the same way that when I go to the store, I decide to buy bananas from you and you take my money and that serves us both. But I don't think that it is transcends any more of that relationship. Now, it is true that they, that people, as I said, see, see one another as part of a common destiny because of that. But I, as, as I've said, I think most of that is kind of mystical and mythological. Let's turn this a bit to, you know, what's going on in the world right now. I wonder if you can connect what we've been talking about with the current war in the Ukraine. Is part of the story here Vladimir Putin's conception of an almost myth-like Russian nationalism that he would like to see revived. I'm asking you if part of the story of the war here is Vladimir Putin's conception of an almost myth-like Russian nationalism that he would like to see revived. In that sense, as much of nationalism kind of tied up with nostalgia, the desire to see time that's passed when things were presumably better than they are now, and you wanted to make a kind of triumphant return. Right. So as I've said, I think nationalism is a response to the disruption of the modern world and to the instability that we experienced. And societies that have been less capable or or less effective at adjusting to the modern world and providing for all their citizens are more prone towards nationalism because the promises of modernity have not been as fruitful, which is why we see, I think, nationalism in societies are going undergoing a lot of social and economic strife, such as Russia, India, Brazil, the Philippines, and so on. And you know, Putin's nationalism or pan-Slavism in which there's some kind of mythic Slavic people that is all joined under one empire, you know, centered in Russia is based on that conception that there used to all be this unified people that had ties to the Russian Orthodox Church that shared a common ethnic ancestry. And that if we can get back to that, then we'll restore Russian society and Eastern European society to 
great extent to some kind of to some kind of pure state and remove what he sees as the corrupting influence of Western society, of liberalism in a larger philosophical sense, and so on. The problem, of course, is that the peoples that that Putin is trying to conquer do not see themselves as part of that destiny. They do not share this sense of common agreement, which is why Ukrainians are resisting Putin. Of If there wasn't this disparity, then there would be no resistance because they would say we are simply Russians or Slavs of, in some common thing. And so the pro- the big challenge of with the big problem with nationalism is that in order for it to work, other people have to be convinced that their primary identity is the one that you think they have and that they should adopt it and see their individual lives and or their country's destiny as part of your own, even if they happen to not feel that way or they feel like may feel like they have different allegiances that compete for their attention, such as their religion or their family or whatever. You've quoted the contemporary political thinker Francis Fukuyama, who's most noteworthy for his work, The End of History, to the effect that some people are always going to be inherently competitive and greedy for recognition and that human beings exhibited what he calls megalothymia, which is a desire not just for respect and proportionate recognition, but a need to disproportionately dominate over others in ostentatious and spectacular ways. Now, you write that megalothymia was by no means always or necessarily a bad thing. It was what had driven human beings to, say, build cathedrals, achieve great works of art, found empires and political movements, and generally kind of pushed the direction of history forwards. But it seems like if it's not channeled to appropriate ends, it could quickly turn vicious and find an outlet in the domination and oppression of others. Do you think that when megalothymia, this need for respect and recognition, is combined with ultranationalism that the result mix is toxic? Very much so. In many ways, I think of nationalism as an ideology that basically runs on megalothymia, runs on a concept of honor in which Respect is given to some people and not to others. And then in order for respect to operate properly, some people need to be more important than other people. Some people have to be the ones who are at the top of our, are at the top of the food chain, who are hierarchically structured above others and that others must be deprioritized or even subjugated to their will in order for this to work. Because if you think that respect is, is only functions properly if honor is given to some rather than to others, and you think that my group is the only group that matters morally, then you will inevitably arrive at the conclusion that what we need to do is subjugate or destroy or deep, in some way radically deprioritize other groups who you see it as coming at the expense of your own. Is in tension with the claims of modern liberalism, which says that which claims that everyone has equal dignity, that all humans are beings are worth exactly the same. And, you know, more recently that all human beings and perhaps various non-human animals are worth the same. And so there is a tension between megalothymia, honor culture, in which there is a hierarchy of who is recognized and who is not, versus the dignity culture in which everyone has equal status. And the great revolution of liberalism and the Enlightenment was to say that everyone is worth exactly the same. And radically in postmodern circles that no one's perspective is more valid than anyone else's. 
Albert Einstein once called nationalism an infantile disease, the measles of mankind. Its critics blame it for wars and violent territorial expansions, for racist attitudes and as a threat to democracy and global trade and relationships. Its supporters see it as defending heritage and culture in a world of slowly dissipating meaning and values. Whatever your thoughts about nationalism, one thing seems certain for the moment. Nationalism is a force to be reckoned with and highlights the deep divisions around the world about matters of identity and belonging. And these arguments can start out as benign, but end up as deadly. And this has been What Would You Do, a monthly podcast about ethics in the modern world. To find previous episodes of this series, as well as other podcasts, just subscribe to Living Jewishly at www.livingjewishly.org, where you can find details of our amazing new course on Judaism in the School of Living Jewishly. And check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Stay safe and take good care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.